Amen. You guys excited about the Word of God tonight? If you have your Bible, get it out and get it ready. Jaw-dropping theology. Now, there is a specific reason that it is named this, but I will say at the outset that it makes my jaw drop just to think about the fact that God loves me enough that he is coming back to give me a new body and make a new heavens and a new earth. Who else is excited about that tonight? It's about time that the church of Jesus Christ gets really excited about what the Bible says we should be excited about, which is not this life, but the next life. Amen? I was teaching in our Ascend class this morning, and it struck me. You know, I was talking about what we deserve and what we don't deserve. And I mentioned that if God Almighty came down right now and struck Shelley Prindle with a bolt of lightning and I sizzled and died in front of you, wouldn't that be interesting? Marty's like, ooh, <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing that happen. Marty, you're so bad. She's like, ooh, that's exciting. If God did that to me right now, this moment, do you know that I would get exactly what I deserve? I don't even deserve to be alive. I don't deserve to have life because the wages of sin is death. And so it makes my jaw drop open in wonderment that God would save us and that he would have a plan for this universe. Amen? Despite who we are. And so we're going to talk about that this evening. What I'm going to do in this message is trace God's heart through an actual geographical location in the world today. And we're going to go to the Mount of olives. Now I know we're Bob and Denise Tierney. Are they in here? They're skipping out on my message. They have been to Israel. I don't know how many of the rest of you have, but they've actually seen the Mount of Olives. And I want to talk to you about this. The Mount of Olives is a mountainous area that's about a mile long, and it lies just to the right of Jerusalem. It's separated from that great city by a narrow valley called the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olives is about 2,680 feet above sea level. It has existed throughout the history of the world, the Old Testament, the New Testament, to modern day. This is a modern day shot of the Mount of Olives is actually in the foreground overlooking the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. Now the Mount of Olives here, as you can see in the foreground, you see all those boxes lined up there? Those boxes are actually ossuaries which are boxes that contain the bones of dead people. The Mount of Olives, I remember the Tyrannies came back from Israel and they said, we were amazed, Shelley, we were so excited to see the Mount of Olives because of what you've taught us about what is going to happen there. We couldn't wait to see it. And we got there and we're like, this is disgusting. This is a bunch of graves. Yes, it is littered with the graves of thousands upon thousands of people who, religious people, not necessarily Christians, but religious people who throughout the centuries have chosen to have their bones placed on this mountain for a very valid reason from their perspective. Okay, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But this is a real geographical location. This is a nighttime shot of the Mount of Olives. And as you look up towards the left, you can faintly see all of those ossuaries sitting there with the bones of dead people in them. So we're going to trace God's heart and what he has to say from the Old Testament and the New Testament about this particular location. And I want to preface the whole message by saying this. It's important to understand what God has to say about places because God is the God of geography and time. Amen? See, we make a mistake in this world, and I know it because I've worked in Christian schools for 15 years and I've watched generations of young people from every denomination come through Christian schools and they don't get it that God is the Lord over all reality. We make a mistake in Christianity today that many people believe that my spiritual life, my relationship to God is kind of over here and it's like when I pray and when I read my Bible and when I go to church and it's kind of like the unseen spiritual realm. That's my spiritual life. And then over here is how I entertain myself and where I go on vacation and how I work my job and, you know, where my feet actually hit the ground and outside the trees and all that. That's just, that's something else. That's not sacred. This part, this spiritual unseen part is sacred. This part is not. That's a very dangerous place to be. Does everybody in this sanctuary tonight understand 
that God is the Lord of all reality. And in God's sight, there is nothing secular. Everything is absolutely sacred. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Everything is sacred to God. Places that we live, the houses that we live in, we as Christians, we dedicate things to God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And this excites me because I have met so many people in my lifetime who envision that what heaven is about, what the return of Christ is about, is something spiritual only or ethereal only. You know, what's it going to be like when Jesus returns? What is, you know, is he going to be a spirit floating in the clouds? And I just love how this culture portrays heaven, you know. When you go to heaven, you're kind of like a disembodied spirit and you're floating mysteriously through space. And doesn't that sound like a lot of fun? No. And then you see commercials of people sitting on clouds eating cream cheese and you wonder, what is heaven really about? And I'm here tonight to tell you that God is the Lord of geography and history. That he made this earth, he has an investment in it, and he's going to make it new. And we are going to be here millions and millions of years from now. We will still be enjoying this earth, only it will have been perfected and made right. Amen? And the same thing with my body. God made me. He's not going to throw me away. God doesn't make things to just say, oh, I really messed up on that. Let's just get rid of that thing. He comes to redeem us. He comes to pay the price to buy us back. And so one day we're going to walk through heaven and you're going to be able to hug me. I'm still going to be the huggable Shelly that I am now. Flesh that has been perfected and made right. And that's the exciting thing tonight about the Mount of Olives. We're going to trace God's heart that he is the God of geography and real time and real space. God is Lord of everything. And we need to get excited about his return. I fear in my work with young people that young people and therefore their parents who have taught them are not excited about the return of Christ because we don't understand the actual reality of what is going to happen. How many of you would agree with me in that? We're just kind of unclear and fuzzy and think it's just spiritual. It is going to be the best thing ever. Because the God who made what we can see is greater than what we can see. And he's invested in this world. When God created Adam and Eve, he came down to this earth and he walked with them in the cool of the day. Did he not? Did he not? He walked with physical people in the cool of the day. When God created you and I, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the first thing he did was pick up material stuff. He picked up the dust of the ground, the dust that he had made out of nothing. He picked up dust and he blew into man the breath of life. Isn't that what it says? We were made to be embodied. God made us to have bodies. He put spirits inside of us. He put his breath in us. And we need to teach our kids that heaven is not a place that you're dreading to go or that is going to be boring. The return of Christ is the most wonderful thing. It is the thing that Hebrews 9.28 says, Jesus is coming back to those who are waiting for him. How many Christians are on the edge of their seats waiting for Christ to return? One head shaking. Everybody else is like, I don't know. (laughs) Okay, listen. The Bible claims that Jesus is coming back to people who are waiting for him. We need to get excited about that. We need to understand he's the God of reality. Um, Just one kind of sidebar that I want to make sure you understand. What you can see is more real than what you can't see. Amen? Hebrews chapter 11. What we can see has been made out of what we can't see. I was recently sitting with um, a friend, and we were talking about the reality of Jesus' return, of him coming back in his body to this earth to make it right, to make it real. And I said, look out at that tree. That tree is so strong, you can touch it. I could climb that tree. It could hold me. That tree is solid and real to you, is it not? And she said, yes, it is. I said, where would that tree come from? What's the answer, everybody? God. God made that tree. Now, is God supernatural or natural? Supernatural. God is spirit. God is supernatural. He made that tree. Someone that I can't see made something that I can see. So who is greater? Which is greater? The supernatural or the natural? And the answer is the supernatural. 
What I can't see is even more real than the mountains or the sunset or the trees. I serve the God of reality. Amen? He's in charge of it. If you turn with me to a a, a great passage of Scripture, Psalm 121. If you have your Bibles, turn there because I like when we actually get our Bibles out and hear the pages flip open. Does anybody else like that? I know Amy does. Hear it, Amy? Okay, there you go. Psalm 121. This is what the psalmist said when he was trying to grasp the God who made reality. He's the God of the real stuff. The psalmist was crying out to the Lord for comfort, and he said, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? So he goes out and he looks at these big mountains, these strong mountains that we can put buildings on top of that can take us days to climb. And he says, I'm inclined when I need help to look upward. And I look to something that is bigger than me, that is stronger than me. I lift my eyes from the, to the hills and I say, God, where does my help come from? And then the psalmist resounds with, my help doesn't come from the mountains. My help comes from the maker of the mountains. Amen? I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Did anybody see the sunset tonight or the moon? How many people say, was that gorgeous? When you look at that sunset, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. If that sunset is that magnificent, can you imagine what the maker of that sunset is like? And can you furthermore imagine what a sunset would be like in a perfect world? Amen? We lift our eyes to the maker of the heaven and the earth. The psalmist went down in verse 6 and he said, look, God made the sun and the moon and he's in charge of them. He'll protect you from the sun and the moon. He can do whatever he, he would like to do with them. And then he goes on to say the Lord is going to keep you from all harm. He'll watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. He is the God of stuff. He is the God of geography, the God of places, the God of mountains, the God of sunsets. He is the God of geography, and he is the God of time and history. And if you see at the end of this verse, the Lord is going to watch over Shelley Prindle. The Lord's going to watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. And I looked that up in the Hebrew and it means exactly what it says. When you have to walk into the doctor's office and when you walk back out, God's watching over you. When you get up in the morning and your feet hit the floor of your house and you're headed to the bathroom to brush your teeth and you're wondering how you're going to face another day the lord is literally watching your footsteps in the exact place that you live amen is that what the scripture means wherever you have to go wherever you go and wherever you come from the lord is watching over you because he is the god of places and spaces amen And the God of places and spaces is coming back to make all places and spaces right someday. And I'm going to be there. And I'm going to enjoy it. Amen? He is the God of geography. He's the God of places. I want you to flip in your Bibles with me now to Acts chapter 17. We're going to go to the New Testament and see what Dr. Luke had to say in the book of Acts about God being the maker of places and spaces. Keep your thumb in Acts chapter 17. Let me say one more thing to you about this God. Everything is is sacred to God. There's nothing separate from his lordship. And the other thing is, God is both transcendent and imminent. Now, we've lost in our culture today the understanding of God's transcendence. We live in a pantheistic, new age type of culture, which teaches our children that I am part of God, you are part of God, the tree has God in it. You know what I'm saying? Even Disney movies are, are, are teaching animism and pantheism. And we have to be very careful that we understand something. Yes, God is in me. He resides in me. I'm saved. Yes, the Holy Spirit is working on this earth. But God is other than a human being. Amen? God is above us. God is different than us. God created space and time. 
If he created space and time, he must exist outside of space and time, and it is totally and completely dependent on him while he is dependent on none of it. Amen? So he is transcendent while at the same time he is imminent and right in it with us. Is that beautiful or what? God, how could you be so great that you made everything and it is totally dependent on you, but you've lowered yourself to come and be in it with us? And I want to ask you tonight, do you think that the God who is both transcendent and eminent is going to suddenly, at his return and in heaven, everything's going to change and now he's not going to be right in stuff with us? It's going to be some kind of surreal experience. It is reality. Jesus is coming back to make this heavens and this earth new. I want you to look at Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick it up at verse 24. This is a passage that brings both of these qualities of God right into focus. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. God does not live in Norwin Alliance Church. He doesn't live in any particular temple or place. Why? Because God is omnipresent. You cannot contain him. He can't be located into one particular place. He is transcendent. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. That's an interesting statement. He's not served by human hands. What is God trying to say? If not a single human being who's ever been born on the face of the earth, if not one of us ever worshipped God or praised his name, he would still be exactly as big and great as he is. Our worship of him does not enlarge him. It doesn't change him. And our lack of worship does not detract from him. Amen? God is who he is. It's we who need to grow and be changed. Hallelujah. So he exists outside of space and time. He can't be served by human hands or made greater by us. Now check this out, verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. What did, what did God determine for people? What does it say? He, he determined the what that you should live in? The Say it out loud. The times and the what? The places. Our God is a God of geography and he's a God of history. And he's always going to be that way. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. I don't know about you, but this comforts me. I've had many students throughout the years say, well, Mrs. Prindle, why do you think we were able to be born in America and other people are born into Africa into abject poverty? Why did God do that? Well, here's my answer. All I know is this. God put everybody in the place that they are for the purpose, knowing that they would reach out to him best from where they're at. That's what it says. And I will never forget the day at Christian Fellowship Academy when I was teaching a high school Bible class. And we were looking at this passage to learn the transcendence and eminence of God. And there was a young lady in my class that I just happened to run into at the bowling alley with a friend the other night. I will never forget this moment when the Holy Spirit moves. You just were studying this passage. And I knew that this young lady had lived in a trailer park her whole life with her single mother. They had next to nothing. And she was going to a Christian school with a bunch of kids who came from a pretty wealthy background. And I knew that often she faced difficulty because of that. And we came to this passage and we were studying it. And it said, the Lord has determined the exact place and time that you should live so that you'll reach out and seek him and find him. And the Holy Spirit impressed on my heart to talk about that verse and to say this. If you live in a trailer park, God is with you there. And he has a reason for you to be there. And it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he knows you'll seek out and find him. Amen? God has determined the exact places and the time in which we live so that we will seek him and find him. He knows our makeup. He knows where we need to be to reach out to him. And so Acts 17 confirms what we see in Psalm 121, that God is the God of geography, and he's the God of time. He's the God of history. 
Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. We talk about God being eternal, but when we say that, it's not just that our God endures through an endless number of moments. God is timeless. God doesn't endure through any number of moments. He stands completely outside of time. Does that blow your mind? See, we're stuck in it, and I can't comprehend this. I want to look backwards and try to make sense of what's happened, or I want to look forward and try to figure out what's going to happen, and I hope that by looking this way and that way, I'll understand. Do you know what God's doing? He's not looking this way or that way. He's up above it all, looking down on time, knows the whole thing. Isn't that beautiful? He is the beginning and the end. If you take the course of human history, if you start over at the left part of the axis there and you talk about Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of time. At one point God created time. And if you look the furthest, remotest point in human history, if you look back as far as you can, or if you go forward as far as history as we know it is going to last, at both points stands Jesus Christ in full control of the whole thing. Amen? And according to Ephesians 1.11, having that full control, he is working everything after the counsel of his own will. He is the Lord of geography, and he is absolutely the Lord of time. Now, with that set up in mind, with the understanding, with the assurance that God cares about places and spaces and where your feet walk, he cares about your physical body, we're living in a sin-cursed world, so it's messy, but he cares. Amen? And with the understanding that he cares about time and he cares about your existence and your endurance through time, now we come and we trace his heart through a geographical location and we look at what the return of Jesus Christ looks like. So we're going to go back to the Mount of Olives. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke 21, verse 37. Luke 21, verse 37. Flip the pages for Amy. She likes this. I hope it's getting on the tape, Aim. You can just replay. You can, like, rewind, fast forward, just listen to this part. Okay, Luke chapter 21, verse 37. A very, very inspiring verse. Okay, this is a great memory verse. Ready? This is so inspiring. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. (sighs) Who's inspired? Okay. Bob, (laughs) you get my humor, don't you? I appreciate you. I know. Yeah, that's right. You had to be at the Mount of Olives. Okay. Each day, Jesus would teach at the temple, and every evening, he would spend the night. He would actually rest and sleep on the hill called the Mount of Olives. This absolutely blows my mind, that he could sleep on that mount sitting just to the right of Jerusalem. And the reason I'm amazed is because of this verse, Matthew 26, verse 38. The context of Matthew 26 and verse 38 is we are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who remembers this scene? Everybody? Raise your hand so I know you're awake. Okay, thank you. Throw something at me. I don't care what you do. Smile, laugh. Listen. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you know where the Garden of Gethsemane is? It's on the western slope, say it with me, of the Mount of Olives. Now, I, Shelley Prindle, if I have a root canal scheduled for a Wednesday afternoon, can't hardly sleep Tuesday night. Who's with me? The Garden of Gethsemane is the place where Jesus commenced untold, unbelievable suffering. And he knew it. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So from eternity past and all through his earthly existence, he knew what was coming and he knew where it was coming. It was coming at the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. All right? 
He knew it. He took his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and he said, I want you to come with me, and I want you to stay and keep watch with me. Why? Because my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus said, I am so overwhelmed by what I'm about to do. In my flesh nature, I feel like I could die under the weight of this. And this is where he goes and he sweats drops of blood as he labors before his father and says, is there any other way? And then accepts the plan. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives to face what he knows is going to be the worst thing in terms of his suffering ever. Now, it's not just the physical suffering. He he suffered more physically than any of us will ever imagine. But I want you to take this into consideration. When he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and started sweating great drops of blood, he was thinking more than about being crucified. Here's what was going to happen. How many of you as a Christian in this room have ever committed sin, and when you had all, when you were done committing sin, you could hardly stand to be with yourself with the conviction? And as unsaved people, you bear the guilt. How many of you know that the guilt and conviction of sin is heavy, heavy stuff? Jesus knew on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, I am hours away from carrying not just one human being's sin, but carrying the pain of the sin of the entire world and having to cry out and saying to my Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It amazes me that for three years of ministry, knowing that that was going to happen on the Mount of Olives, that Jesus could patiently teach people and then go over to the same mountain, look at it, know what was coming, and fall asleep at night. Anybody else amazed by that? One thing that the Mount of Olives teaches us as Christians is this. We can face any difficulty the future holds because our God is in control. Amen? My Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that when Jesus suffered what he didn't deserve, he did it because he entrusted himself to his Father who judges righteously. He was able to rest every night on the Mount of Olives, and and I'm sure, I can't wait to talk to him someday and ask him, I'm sure that when he went to rest on that Mount of Olives and laid his head down wherever he could find a place to be, he had to think of the great drops of blood that were going to come as he sweat out what he was about to do. And yet he rested because he trusted in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, where the apostle, where Luke tells us that Jesus was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Amen. Jesus knew God had a plan. And Jesus knew that, yes, I'm going to face this, but I know the plan is bigger. I know I'm going to be raised from the dead. I know I'm going to conquer sin and death and give away for all of us to be raised from death. And he trusted in God whose plan was bigger when he looked at the future and faced something that was unimaginable. And so this evening, the first thing I want you to remember about the Mount of Olives is this. It teaches you and I that when we look to the future... Whether we know the impending doom or we are sure of the difficulty ahead or we just look to the future and say, I don't know what it holds, we can still rest. Hallelujah. We can still rest because our God is in control. The Mount of Olives. I want you to turn now to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So Jesus taught in Jerusalem, slept on the Mount of Olives, labored in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives, taught us to trust the Lord and rest when facing unknown or difficult circumstances, 
Number two, if you look in Acts chapter 1 in your Bible and you take your finger down to verse 12, here's what it says. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. So all of this that takes place in verses 1 through 11 is taking place where? On the Mount of Olives. Okay, very important place to God. A geographical location that still exists over there in the Middle East today. It is an actual place. And this is taking place there. And I'm going to set the stage for you by um, just going backwards before we read here. And let's think about what has happened. The disciples, okay, they have walked with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus for three years, right? They had seen him perform miracles. They tried to believe and grasp the fact that he was God. Amen? He did miracles. He did all this stuff. And the whole time he was saying, now, guys... Please understand, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be crucified. I'm gonna go to the cross to pay for your sins. I'm gonna be crucified and then I'm gonna rise again. But they never really could fully wrap their minds around that, right? And we know that for a fact because when he was arrested, what did all the disciples do? They all ran, they all scattered, they all fled, they just really couldn't wrap their minds around it. So emotionally speaking, they walk with him and they're kind of excited about him for three years and not really, a little bit fuzzy on what's going to happen, wondering, you know, what's this thing he's talking about. Then all of a sudden, he is taken, he's arrested, they run, they flee, he's crucified, and now he's in the grave. And so emotionally speaking, they're like, he's in the grave. Was he right? Was he God? Is he really going to rise from the grave? We can't imagine this. He was flesh and blood. He's the son of Joseph. Is he really who he said he was? Is he going to come out of the tomb? And so they've gone through all this stuff. They've watched him be crucified. They, they fleed. They wondered. They waited. And then on the third day, he rose. He came out of the tomb. And the Bible tells us that he walked the earth for 40 days. And he showed himself to the disciples and more than 500 witnesses. And can you imagine what they felt like when he actually did come out of the tomb? They were probably like, I can't believe this. We had hoped. We had seen. We had wished for. We tried to believe. Then you went and you died and you were in the tomb and we kind of tried to hang on. Now you came out and you proved that you really are God. And he walks with them then. He had been with them for three years while they wondered. Died rose again, and then walked with them for 40 days after his resurrection. And and while he walked with them, he did, like, really cool things with his glorified body. How many of you know at one point they were in a locked room, and Jesus just, ooh, and he came. Don't you love that? Like a transportable body. Okay, he was flesh, because at the same time, he said to Thomas, you can touch my side if you want to. I mean, he, he hugged them. He ate fish with them. I love that. You know, he told them, to, you know, uh, where to find more fish. And he showed up on the shore. And he's like, let's have breakfast together, bread and fish. After he had a new and glorified body, he ate. He was real. You could touch him. And yet he could transport through walls. Isn't that cool? I can't wait for my glorified body. You're going to see me like exploring the universe. Now, I really believe that. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen again. That glorified body is a picture of what God is going to do for us. Amen? That's why he brought Jesus from the dead, so that we could rise too. And when Jesus had a glorified body, he ate and he hugged people and he talked and he lived with them. And that is our hope. Amen? Who's excited about that? So here are these disciples. And all this happens, and now he's walking around with them in this new glorified body. And they finally are like, he really is who he said he was. This is so exciting. We're going to walk with him and do all kinds of cool stuff. And I wonder if he's going to fulfill all the other scriptures about him now and take over the Roman Empire and rule the world and fix everything and make it right like all the prophets say he's going to do. Okay, that had to be what they're thinking, right? Because they're emotional people just like us. So here's what happens. I love this. So you pick it up at verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they're probably like, wow, he wants us to wait in Jerusalem for a special gift for power. Man, we're going to take over the world. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. 
Okay. I got so excited my Bible flew. Okay, so verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they're like, he really came from the tomb. He's walking around with us. He is who he said he was. We know all the prophecies about him. Is this it, Jesus? They're like little kids. Is this it? Are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to overthrow the Roman government? Are you going to make everything right? Are you going to rule and reign? I love it. He really put a damper on their day. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. He basically, translation said, don't worry about it. Okay? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the times or the dates of when that's going to happen. But here's what he said. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. In where? In places, in geographical locations, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So Jesus says this. He's basically saying, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm coming back one day to restore the kingdom of Israel. I'm coming back to take over every throne and to make things exactly right. But don't you worry about exactly when it's going to happen. What you need to be worried about is being filled with the Holy Spirit, being on fire, passionate for me, telling as many people about this as possible so they can be a part of it too. Amen? And what is the church of Jesus Christ doing right now in terms of the return of Jesus Christ? Are we passionately on fire and waiting and witnessing with the power of His Holy Spirit that this stuff is true? That my God is the Lord of geography and time? Does the generation coming behind me know that Shelley Prindle believes God's really doing this stuff? And that all my hope is in Him and His return and what He is coming to do? Amen? We are to focus on the power and the proclamation of what we are proclaiming. Now, after he kind of puts a damper on things and says, don't worry about the times. Don't get all hyped up about what I'm doing. Rather, be hyped up about what I'm hyped up about is this. God cares about lost people. Second Peter chapter 3 says, God is not slow in his promise to come back. As we understand slowness, the reason he's patient in telling you to be a witness is he wants everyone to be saved. But we're sitting around watching Dancing with the Stars and reruns of Andy Griffith at night instead of proclaiming and learning and teaching and getting excited about the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? He said, you'll be filled with power. You need to proclaim that this is true. So after he tells them this in verse 9, here's here's what it says. They're like, okay, we're trying to process this all, Jesus, but you're still with us. We walked with you for three years. We saw all this happen. We got all hyped up because you rose from the dead. Now he's only been with them for a month and ten days, 40 days, right? And they're trying to process everything and all excited about their Lord. And I just absolutely love verse 10 or verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up in a cloud before their very eyes and disappeared. Okay, you you get it like I do? Because I've set the stage. Now, you read this a little bit differently now. You've tried to put yourself in their place and their emotion. Okay, they're trying to take all this in. This is our Savior. He's finally here. He's walked with us for only a month and ten days. And he's telling us all about this power and this gift and all this fancy, cool stuff that he wants us to do. And What? You, You took off. You're gone. Can you imagine if you're one of the disciples? You're on the Mount of Olives. This has all just happened. And all of a sudden, he just rises up. He just levitates up. You know what I'm saying? In his glorified body, he's gone. And a cloud hides him from their sight. This is why I call it jaw-dropping theology. That's me. I mean, I have a tendency to open my mouth agape when I'm surprised. Don't I? My mouth just kind of catching flies. Okay, I'd be standing there like, what's up with that? What? You did all this and you rose from the dead and now you're just going to float up and leave us and tell us about this power and this gift? Where are you going? When are you? The Romans are still. What? And he's gone. Now the angels, they didn't have a lot of sympathy. Okay? Because the angels come 
And as they were jaws dropped, mouths agape, looking intently up into the sky as he was going, trying to process all their emotions, suddenly these two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? And if I'm Peter, because I think I am a lot like Peter, I'm wanting to say, why do you think? <laughs> but I wouldn't say that to an angel because he would have overwhelmed me. But I'm just saying, I would. why do you think? Duh. Okay. Obviously, they're asking a rhetorical question, but they're trying to get these guys to see something that is so critical. They said to him, and I'm sorry, but I don't have very many favorite Bible verses, do I? Just a few, right? Just a few. But this is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. Their mouths are agape. They're looking at Jesus who just rose. They're trying to process everything. And those angels look at them and they say, now I want you guys to get this point. This is so important. They say, this same Jesus, not another Jesus, not a spiritual only Jesus, this same Jesus, John, you're the one who laid your head on his breast at the table, that Jesus. Thomas, the same Jesus that offered for you to put his hand in, your side, in, in his side. The same Jesus, the one you guys hugged, the one you guys walked with, the one who touched and cleaned your feet, this real flesh Jesus, this same Jesus, the one who ate fish with you, the one who spit in mud and took his hands and healed blind eyes, this exact same Jesus, not a spiritual Jesus, not a ghost kind of Jesus, this same Jesus who has been taken up into heaven right before your eyes is going to come again out of heaven in exactly the same way you've seen him go. Amen. I am waiting for that day. He left it off with the disciples. And my promise is that that same flesh and blood Jesus, God in the flesh, is coming back to where? This earth. The same way he went. He's not throwing this earth away. This is going to be part of the new heavens and the new earth. But here is something even greater to understand. 1 Corinthians 15 makes clear. That Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His new and glorified body came out of the tomb. He ascended to the Father. And he's coming back one day to give you and I real and new glorified bodies. Amen. Who's excited about that? This same Jesus. Now, I am an artist. Don't be jealous. Yvonne, Yvonne's worked for me for a long time. She knows. Okay, I'm an artist. Don't be jealous. This is my rendition of the rapture. Don't be stealing it from me, putting it on the Internet, taking all the millions of dollars I can make from this. Okay? This is my rendition of the rapture. Now, I'm going to tell you something. The Mount of Olives, Jesus' ascension from the Mount of Olives and the promise of his return is a promise that this same Jesus is going to appear in the clouds someday. Now, I don't want to, uh, my intent is not to get into all this doctrine about rapture versus millennium and tribulation and all that. I mean, the Alliance churches clearly teach a premillennial rapture. That's what I believe. But suffice it to say, two things are going to happen. The Bible promises that at one time Jesus is going to come and he'll come in the clouds to take us up. And then there's another time when Jesus is actually going to come and his feet are going to touch back down on this earth. Amen? So this is when he appears in the clouds, all right? Now, you can tell who Jesus is in this picture because of the yellow glory bars. <laughs> Isn't that cool? You like that, that, don't you? Yeah, I know. Okay, so that's Jesus. He's holding a cross and has the glory bars. Now, here's what 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says. And by the way, notice there are two layers of people in this picture. You got the three down near the trees and the rooftops, and you got the second layer, okay? For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ, that first layer, will rise first. Okay? After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up in the clouds together with the Lord to meet him in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord forever. 
When the rapture happens and this same Jesus appears in the clouds, the coolest thing in the world is going to take place. And I want to be near a cemetery when it happens. I want to be driving by a cemetery with my nephews who I've taught all about the rapture and be like, see, I told you. Okay, I want to be driving by a cemetery because, of course, I don't want to die. I want the rapture to happen in my lifetime. God and I have an understanding about that. You know what I'm saying? So I want that to happen. So being as that's going to happen, I'm going to ask him to let me be driving by or standing in the middle of a cemetery because I kid you not. Now, this is not fake stuff. You teach your kids this. This is reality. The God who made the molecules of Shelley Prindle's body is going to one day restore them and make them new. And it doesn't matter if your body's been blown apart by a bomb, if it's been disintegrating in the ground for 8,000 years. It doesn't matter what has happened. The God who made you out of nothing from the dust to the ground can certainly make you again. Amen? Okay, so what's going to happen is the dead in Christ, the people like my nanny whose spirits are already up with Jesus, when he comes back in the clouds, her body is going to rise out of the ground and immediately be changed in the twinkling of an eye and be made brand new, like all the molecules of nanny disintegrating in the ground. Come back together. And there she is in her new and glorified, non-sick, non-tending towards sin, perfect, restored, wonderful body. Hallelujah. That's the dead in Christ rise first. And then after that, we who are still alive and are left, then we go up in the second layer and we get our glorified bodies too if we're still here when the rapture happens. And the Mount of Olives helps us to remember that because this same Jesus in his body, in his new and glorified body, will descend and come down to the clouds to give you a new and glorified body. Who's excited about that? Who's sick of this old body? All of its problems, all of its issues. I know, Marty. It's, it really, it's really something, isn't it? Okay, so he's coming back to do that. All right. The last thing about the Mount of Olives I want to teach you tonight. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. Okay, so we're going to have real and glorified bodies. We can rest in facing the future. Now, Zechariah chapter 14 is another place where the Bible talks about the Mount of Olives. This is unbelievable stuff, but it's true. He's the God of geography. He's talking about that place in the Middle East. Zechariah chapter 14. I'm going to pick it up at verse 1. Zechariah is writing in 500 B.C., and this is what he says. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. So all the nations of the world are going to come against God's holy city, the center of worship. I'm going to gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Under the Antichrist and Satan, sinfulness just comes to a wicked head. And all the nations gather together against Jerusalem and abominable things begin to happen. Half the city is taken out, the rest remain. Verse 3. But then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. As God fights in the day of battle. Now I don't think I have to tell you how God fights. And when God fights, he wins. Okay, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day, read it with me, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now listen, he rested on the Mount of Olives. He commenced his crucifixion on the Mount of Olives. He left this earth from the Mount of Olives. And one day. This same Jesus, not, a, not an ethereal Jesus, not a ghost-like Jesus, but a Jesus with feet, okay? This same Jesus, 
His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Can you picture that, Bob? Because you've been there. It will actually be split from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south, and you will flee by my mountain valley. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future one day when he comes back the second time. Not the rapture, but when he actually comes back the second time. The Bible says that he specifically will put his feet down on that mile-long Mount of Olives. And he will split the thing in half so that there will be a valley. And it is split, a northern part and a southern part. And the reason he's doing this is Jerusalem lies just across the Kidron Valley and it's been raining. And half the people are trapped and left there as the nations have come against Jerusalem. And as they're left there with no way of escape, Jesus is going to come down and put his feet on the Mount of Olives and split the thing in two just by setting his feet down. And when he does, he'll create a great valley. So we've got Jerusalem and now we've got a horizontal valley going across So that the people who are stuck in Jerusalem, God provides a way of escape and they run through that valley that God's feet has just produced. Is that a beautiful picture or what? When is the last time in the Bible you saw God tearing something in half so his people can escape? Anybody? The Red Sea, which is a picture of our redemption and salvation. They're stuck in Egypt in sinfulness, and God wants to deliver his people. And so he sets them out. And just about the time God sets his people free from the enemy, the enemy says, hmm, I'd like to get them back. And God's people were caught between the Red Sea and the impending chariots of Pharaoh. You remember what God did? I'm not going to let you die there. I'm going to provide a way of escape by my own hand. And he parted the Red Sea so that they could go through on dry land. The first time, he parted waters. The second time, he's parting a mountain by just his feet. I love it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that when the Antichrist comes to set up his kingdom, Jesus is going to destroy him. Do you know what he's going to use to destroy him? A club? A bat? A sword? A bullet? You know what he's going to destroy him with? He's going to destroy him with the breath of his mouth. See you later. Don't you love it? And when Jesus comes back to provide a way of escape for us, he's just going to put his feet down on a physical, geographical location, and the whole thing's going to split and shift. And God's people can run through a way of escape it is not just the way of escape out of jerusalem for that moment but if you go on to read zechariah 14 whether whether god here is talking about the millennial reign of christ or the eternity that we are going to have in the new heavens and the new earth you read in verse 8 on that day living water will flow out from jerusalem half to the eastern sea half to the western sea in summer and in winter the lord will be king over the whole earth On that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Hallelujah. He's going to run things his way. No more will there be inhumanity against, men won't fight against one another. We won't be cursed by sin. God is going to set up things his way and he is going to rule and he is going to reign. This is a promise. Now I want to take you one more place. One of my, probably... My favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Let's end here. Second Peter chapter three talks about this return of Christ to this earth to remake it. God is the God of geography and history. God is not going to throw away the earth that we live on. This earth is going to be part of the new heavens and the new earth that we reside on. Are you excited about that? All the beautiful things that we enjoy. God intended us to enjoy this without sin, but sin messed it up. But he's not going to throw it away. He's going to come back and make it right. And so 2 Peter chapter 3 talks to us about that promise, and it's very clear. This is Peter speaking. God gave him a very clear vision of what's going to happen. Peter says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. 
Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By that same word, the present, listen, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way. Let me say that again. Since everything, anything and everything shakable that we could live for, riches, power, this life, this world, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? There's the question. Isn't that the question of the hour? <laughs> when you put it all in perspective, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. Listen, what's it say? As you look forward to the day of God. Do your children know that you look forward to the day that Jesus is coming back? Or do they only know that you look forward to Christmas when you can give them presents? Do your best friends, does your family know that you are looking forward to the day of God? Or do they only know that you look forward to watching your favorite television program of the Steelers play? As you look forward to the day of God and speed, it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Listen. This present earth, not another earth, this earth, Jesus is going to come back and remake by fire. Not destroy by fire so as to throw it away, but to purify it by fire like we purify gold. And this is one of my favorite lines. When I first read that passage, I thought, yeah, God, you get them, those dirty, rotten scoffers, those terrible scoffers who don't think Jesus is coming back. Go get them, God. Pound them. And then I realized me is I want to ask you a very sobering question if you really believed that Jesus could come back before 9 p.m. this evening would you have lived today differently huh if we really believe that he could come back in the middle of the night tonight How would we live differently now? Oh, we would, if we knew. And that's one of the reasons he doesn't tell us. Listen, we're supposed to be waiting for him, not because of the event, but because we love him. I want Jesus to come back because of him. I'm going to, listen, The Bible says he's going to make this into a home of righteousness where everything is as it ought to be. And I long for that. I want my body to not be diabetic anymore. And I want it to be as it ought to be and to function right. And I want my relationships and my friendships to be as they ought to be and to function exactly right. And I want the earth to function exactly as it should. I want this to be a home of righteousness. But are we after righteousness in our own hearts and lives? Because if you don't care about what is righteous in your life now, you don't fit in a home of righteousness. Amen? What business would a person who on this earth says, I care about all kinds of stuff, but I'm not really that into righteousness. Okay, then you don't belong in a home of it. belong in a home of selfishness, which is what hell is. When a person gets exactly what they desire, which is worship of themselves and not God. 
Listen, we should be waiting for that day and not scoffing. We should be longing for that day. And we should be impressing on everybody that lives near us, around us, with us, the generations coming behind us. They should know, I am all about the home of righteousness and the return of this same Jesus. What are we living for? Amen?